Hey, have you ever wanted to create your own podcast and share your own light bulb moments with the world? If so, now is the perfect time to do so because audio is the future of the internet and Anchor is a perfect place to do it. So Anchor is a podcasting platform you can find at anchor.fm and it's what we use to create the Lightbulb Moment podcast. So Anchor is amazing because first of all, it's completely free to use. Yep, completely free. And there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. So I've used Anchor to record with other guests on a mobile app, and you can also edit on your computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you across so many platforms. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the other major podcast streaming sites. So you don't have to set up individual accounts and try to distribute to all of those places. And you can also make money from your podcast with no minimum subscribers needed. And it's basically everything you need to record, edit, and publish your podcast in one place all for free. So I highly encourage you to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Good luck. Hi there, my name is Ganika Pinham. And I'm Farika Pinham. We're sisters and the co-founders of Ida. If you're an entrepreneur or a new and upcoming brand, discover customer and audience insights about your product niche at thinkida.com because we are where your customers are. As founders of Ida, we've immersed ourselves in the startup world and become obsessed with all things entrepreneurship. We've learned a lot along the way and still are. And now we want to share that with you, our listeners. Whether you're already a savvy business owner, just getting started, or an aspiring entrepreneur, you are in the right place. Join us as we journey through the ahas, the oh no's, the why me's, the ups and downs, and those serendipitous moments when something clicks and it all falls into place. Welcome to the Lightbulb Moment Podcast. Hi there. Welcome back to the Ida Podcast. I'm here with Nima Ammon, who's a business and investment readiness strategist. So she's helped big names and small names on the way to being discovered names, start new ventures, create new offers, get investment ready, and kick invisible money scripts that have held them back. Unless you've been living off the grid, she can guarantee that you've seen or experienced her work in some way. What that means is that she spent 10,000 plus hours studying and executing strategy, finance, and analysis. She's turned her big business learnings into bite-sized appetizers for solopreneurs and tiny businesses because she found that that's what have been really useful when she started her own entrepreneurial journey. So Nima's background is amazing, as you can tell, and I'm so, so excited to have her on the podcast. And thank you so much for joining today, Nima. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, looking at your background, one thing that I didn't know about you is how you've done so much, you know, work in this field, like accumulated 10,000 plus hours of expertise. And I'm really curious to know more about your journey in getting there and kind of your career trajectory. Yeah, of course. So I knew from a reasonably early age that I wanted to work in business. I wanted to work. I wanted to be an investment banker. And when I finished university, I sort of started pounding the streets of London. Um, Online job hunting wasn't a thing back then as such. Um, So kind of showing my age here. So I was meeting headhunters, recruiters, companies, um, and 
all of them kept telling me the same thing that you have no actual background in investment banking so you know we we can't hire you and i know at the time and it's probably still the case now in fact that not many women become investment bankers it's it's a male dominated industry and one headhunter i met she said to me you know what you're doing this the wrong way the best industry to get into right now is tech within investment banking and while i didn't quite it, it left an imprint on me it wasn't something i wanted to pursue but it left an imprint um, and after so many rejections, I thought, you know what, I'm going to have to find a different way in. So I um, took an offer with a wealth management company um, in their tech department, working on a huge project and thought I'll spend 12 months with them and that will get me what I need to get into investment banking. I stayed with them for about 18 months and completely fell in love with tech, essentially. I worked um, as an analyst. I did test, development, deployment, implementation. It was, I loved project work and, you know, the sort of crazy hours, the ups and the downs, um, solving problems, learning how to read code, how to, you know, um, fix things on the spot, start, you know, working on your feet essentially. So after that, I went to work for a tech consultancy. Um, and after sort of four years in corporate, I decided I wanted to go back and get my MBA. Um, finished MBA school and got an offer with, um, with a bank. Um, but within three months, I knew that, you know what, I, I was more than this. I could do more. I wanted more. So with a very small emergency fund, I started out my own. I handed in my notice and I gave myself three months to start my business and land a client. Um, I landed a client within six weeks. Um, I'd been, I'm really big on building relationships. And that is purely how I got that first client. It was a long sort of months and months of talking of, you know, small talk, talking a little bit more in detail. But that was my first client. And from there, I went on to work for various other investment banks. Um, largely within their tech departments, um, working on large scale changes and transformation on their front office um, trading platforms. After doing that for about 10 years or so, um, it felt like, you know what, I've done everything I want to do within this space um, with my business and it needs to step up a gear. Um, I was making multiple six figures at this point, but I, I wanted something different. I also had a family at this point, so something had to change. So I pivoted into that space between business and technology. And at that point, not many people had a foot in both camps. They couldn't talk both business and technology. Um, and I think nowadays that a lot of product managers can very easily do this role. Um, but again, I sort of went out looking for a different kind of client, you know, talk to my existing clients, you know, how can I fill this gap for you? Um, I essentially landed clients um, and went into a slightly different space. So um, I worked more with leadership teams who were trying to, you know, rebrand their businesses, trying to enter new markets. And that's kind of where I found my space. Again, I've done that for a number of years um, and now sort of moved more into the startup space because, again, I worked on a lot of corporate spin-offs 
So working with um, entrepreneurs who, you know, this, this business is their passion, it's their dream. And sometimes I am that person that comes in and a little bit crushes that because I'm a third party looking in and, um, you know, when they come to me asking, how, how do I make this into a six, seven figure business? How do I get VC funding? How do I get angel funding into this? And I'm that person that's like, I just don't get this business. Um, but also there are in that, you know, a diamond in the rough that you come across an entrepreneur or a business idea and you think, wow, like, I really want to be a part of this. I want to, um, I want to see your journey all the way through. It's a little bit more un unpredictable than um, corporate consulting. You know, it, my corporate consulting business was very stable. I always knew I had long-term retainers and clients. With the startup world, there's a lot more work that I have to do in terms of business development and building that trust with an entrepreneur as well, because we know, especially in the online space, that it's all about know, like, and trust. And that's exactly the same when you build a relationship. We work with people that we feel a trust for, not just somebody that you know, necessarily has the, um, the knowledge or the guidance that they can give you. So that's where I'm at. Um, my business now is all about helping um, entrepreneurs find that business potential within them and to gain financial freedom for that as well. Amazing. Uh, first of all, I have so many questions because your story is just like so awesome and like so inspiring too. Like when you said um, that you, you know, had like a little bit of an emergency fund saved up, right? So you decided to quit your job and get your first client. I think that's so badass <laughs> for a better way to put it. Like it's awesome. And you got it so quickly. And this is like B2B clients we're talking about, right? So that's very tough. So I know you said the first one yeah. is like a relationship, but to sustain your business for 10 years after that, like how do you go about, you know, pitching to B2B and like actually acquiring those retainers and stuff. Um, I always think it's so interesting when people manage to like crack into that because the sales cycle is so long and it's so hard to get like a company to make a change. And also the startup thing, because like you said, startups, <laughs> sometimes because they are so close to it, it's hard to tell. So the thing with B2B clients is it, it takes a while and it's about building a relationship. It's about... Um, creating a connection, a commonality with them. So it's not about coming up with a productized service and saying, here, this is what I offer. That's not what they're looking for. They want to feel that you've customized something for them. Most of the work I did with B2B was um, around large-scale projects. Now, most of the projects were absolutely the same. It was getting a trade from A to B and seeing what it hit in between. So as you do one, you get faster at learning all the bits that happen, you know, from one place to another. But with large organizations, they, they want to feel special. So if you make them feel like they are the only client that you are servicing, that you have their best interests at heart, and you know your stuff, then that's almost two feet in the door, to be honest with you. The retainer part comes from the fact that they feel that you're invaluable to them that without you being there the project will in some way fall apart or they won't be able to execute xyz and this is a little bit harder with 
most clients um, I found, the ones that this was successful with were the ones that didn't have my expertise in-house already. So this was usually around things like rebranding an organization from a operational perspective, not rebranding as in logos and things, but doing this across their systems, across all their operations and business functions. Um, those were the type, types of clients that would keep me on retainer because it would be really difficult for them to find somebody else with that skill set um, at short notice, essentially. Amazing. And I think that speaks a lot to your like value add too. And yeah, the reason I like asking this question whenever someone you know says that they do B2B is because everyone has like kind of different answers about how to approach. And I think yours is really great. Like um, the first time I've heard that too, um, which is that it has to be unique and they want to feel like they're being like customized to and like wooed essentially right. <laughs> with something yeah. specific. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I know there's a trend right now for productized services and that would make life so much easier. And I think this does work with smaller organizations, but with the large corporates, it does not work. They do not want to hear about productized services. They want, yeah, they want that we are special kind of feeling. Amazing. So that's a really, really important tip. And I think that could really be applicable for us too, because I, as you know, that we're, we would want to go B2B with the app eventually. Um, so super yeah. cool. And you also mentioned like pivoting to startups and stuff like that. And that's always like an interesting niche because like you said, they're very like specific. And then they also, because they're earlier stage, sometimes you have to tell people that their idea isn't what they think it is. So yeah, how do you know that? Like, what are your kind of key indicators of identifying that? Just if someone could do like a self-check on them if they're listening. Um, for me, it's mostly about the founders. Um, and how knowledgeable they are as well. So trying to think of an example here without outing any clients. So if you come to me with, as you, if you come to me with an app and you said, this is what we're going to launch, but you have no background in technology or no exposure to it in any sense, to me, that starts putting out alarm bells. Then you think that this wouldn't happen, but this happens a lot, especially when people are pivoting. If they have a passion for it and they can demonstrate to me we really know this stuff and we would be able to, you know, bat any question, any potential client comes to us with or an investor, then that gives me some confidence. But for some businesses, that doesn't happen. Um, what kind of research they've done? I found nobody likes doing market research. I don't know if that's because it's putting yourself out there to criticism or it's just not very sexy. Um, I think it's a combination of the two. So if you haven't done your research, that creates alarm bells. If you um, aren't able to speak to your product with confidence or your service with confidence, um, that speaks to me that you haven't done enough work. And if you don't have an exit strategy as well, now this might be your baby and you think this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. But things change. I want to hear that you've at least thought far enough ahead to know I want to IPO out, I want to be bought out by a larger company, or I just want to sell out. I just want to know your thought process. So for you to be able to also tell me, this is what my longer term plan is in five years time. Those are probably my three criterias. And then I'm a big one for just going with my gut, which is not scientific at all. Um, 
but I do that <laughs> a lot. Just go with my gut. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this, the scientific part's funny. Um, because, you know, like so recently someone was asking me like, how do you pick things to invest in? And this is like not companies, you know, stocks and such. And I'm like, yeah, I do the research, but I also go with my gut, which is very terrible financial advice and no one should take listening to this, <laughs> but yeah. Your gut's generally not wrong. Yeah. I, that's my thought. I mean, I do run all the financials. Um, I do a lot of financial modeling for clients, but at the end of the day, if it doesn't feel right to me, it's not where I'm going to put my money. Yeah. So that's awesome. And then, yeah, like you said, the market research thing is like ongoing. And every time I feel like it's like an onion, because every time you feel like you've done it, there's like more. So currently with Ida, we're in an incubator right now. And I thought that, you know, like in all this pitching that I've done enough, but then there's like more and I'm like, oh, wow, there's actually a lot deeper that we can go into this. So yeah, that's what we've been learning in terms of market research. And the exit strategy thing is really interesting too that you brought up because um, it's like every investor like wants to see the exit strategy at the end of a pitch deck, right? But I think yeah. like, what do you think are the options for people that maybe don't want to IPO or, or like get acquired or can't? Because those are very like, you know, rare happenings, right? It's like for every 1000 startups, we'll see like a couple in the news that do that, right? So I don't think it's the possibility on its own. It's that you have that vision. It's a bit like, you know, when you start a business and you say out loud, I'm going to make this into a multi-million pound business based on the dollar I've invested so far. It's just having that vision and being able to show that vision. So as an example, um, a few years ago, I heard a Hummus company pitch and their product was amazing. They'd already got a contract with, you know, an upscale supermarket in the UK. Um, I really liked the founders, but they didn't want to go big. They were happy with the operation the way it was. They had no plans to um, IPO out in any way or massively expand into other countries or anything like that. And to me, if I'm investing, I want I want to make some money, essentially. I don't want to get lost in the crowd of all the other hummus companies or food retailers. Um, and the founder just had no type of vision for that end. And it really was, you know, this is my little company. It wasn't a little company. They were making good money, but they had no bigger vision for me to buy into. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. It's not about the possibility, but just like you want people that can think big. Exactly. Awesome. Because as an entrepreneur, you have to do that. If you don't think big, then it's not going to get there. You have to make everybody else believe that big dream. For sure. It all starts in your mind. Um, like everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when you do, so it seems like you do consulting, but then you also invest as an angel or like, do you invest in the companies that you're working with or do you mean invest your time? Um, I don't invest in the companies as a general rule that I'm working with. Um, I do some angel investing. I do, um, I used to this quite a lot to do investing that way as well. Um, but yeah, with clients, I generally don't because I think, I think it, it's a fine line in that relationship. Um, you know, as, as someone who's coaching and consulting and then to put money into that business as well. I haven't had that scenario so far. That makes sense. Yeah. And as someone who's worked in, you know, banking and now like in angel investing, right. It's like two different kind of scales of investing. So 
Um, what do you look for in terms of angel investing? Like when a company's really early and you know, you're really just being their angel, like you don't really know their proven traction yet versus what do you think um, in terms of IB or VC um, after traction? Like what would in your mind be the differentiators between what investors are looking for? So for angel investing, um, specifically around sort of pre-seed and seed stage, it's mostly about the founder and the concept behind the idea. Do I think it could, do I think it could last, do I think the founder can last more than two years in this business? Do they have grit? Do they have skin in the game? Um, Again, a lot of it, because there's no financials to go off, a lot of it is around market research and my gut. If someone's coming with um, a concept that's, you know, something that's been done and it's a crowded market, I will probably do a lot more research around that. Um, But equally, if it's something that's, you know, quite unique, I think it's a different type of research that you do and you run more financials. Um, With a VC, you already have seen the business do some work. Um, It's got some traction. So there's there's numbers that you can run to see how profitable is it? How profitable could it be? My only thing around sort of VC funding is a a lot of the time, it just feels like a little bit of a finger in the air. Um, A company hasn't done enough work. It's probably had 12, 24 months of trading maybe. It's really difficult, I think, to make a really accurate assumption of, is this gonna be the next unicorn? Is this going to be big? And I don't believe VCs have that type of insight either. Uh, I'm almost convinced that they go by their gut a lot of the time as well. (laughs) That is absolutely true. Um, Both like with, you know, like other, you know, VCs that we've talked to and stuff. And like, also recently I did like a couple of VC fellowships and stuff. And yeah, there's like, obviously like, you know, whole investment thesis, but sometimes just know like that a company's not a good fit for your portfolio and things like that. And yeah. Talking about financials and stuff, I think this also came up recently, like in one of my other chats that I was having, I think um, with like, when it comes to talking about money, I think a lot of people shy away from it, like not just your personal money, but even your company's money, because it's like hard to look at the numbers or it's like hard to look at your, you know, projected, you know, P&L and stuff like that. And you talk about how you do have expertise in like helping people battle their money scripts. So for the audience who doesn't know what you're talking about, can you kind of talk about what these money scripts are and like how you help people overcome them? Sure. So these are sort of mental stories that you've created in your head over a period of time. And this is from um, money scripts generally are embedded from a very early age, um, you know, from your childhood. So simple things like, you know, we can't afford that or um, that's a waste of money. And I think that gives you limiting beliefs about your own business as well and how you spend money. Um, So small actions that you may take in your business that you don't want to invest in being, you know, working with an accelerator or you don't want to part with um, part with money for personal development, because while you're trying to create a business, there is a learning aspect. There is that whole saying of you've got to spend money to make money. I believe some of it, but some of it I think is also about you being open to the idea of I'm able to, I will be able to make X amount. I don't 
there, there isn't this blocker. Um, I don't think there's a scarcity around money. It's reconditioning your mindset, essentially. All the things that you were taught as a child, or not even taught, things that you've heard. And I'm, I know all of us have many of these. Um, mm-hmm. We weren't wealthy growing up. So, you know, we always had this thing around, um, we didn't go out to eat very often. And if we did, it would be when we had coupons, um, change a little bit as we got older or you know, my mom's saying, oh, we can't really afford that. That's not within our, it wasn't even within our budget. It was just, we can't afford it. So it's those things that you say to yourself, you'll find yourself saying similar things in a variety of different scenarios. So it's working on those to find out, well, where did that thought come from? Why do you still think it? How is that stopping you from progressing personally with your own personal finance, but also with your business finance as well. Amazing. I could talk about that all day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And as we wrap up here, do you have any final like nuggets of wisdom, like something that um, you wish you'd learned earlier, something that you learned on this journey that you want to make sure, like if you had a big grand message that you want to make sure gets out to people listening? Um, I would say things that I would like to learn that everything takes much longer than you expect it to take. (laughs) <laughs> don't buy into the hype of creating a seven-figure business in seven days. That doesn't happen. Treat every single customer so well. Roll out the red carpet for every single one of them because that that's what makes the difference. Everyone wants to feel special. Work on those relationships. I can't emphasize enough how important building those relationships and maintaining that network, even if it's just, you know, going back to a connection and saying, oh, hey, how how are things going? What's going on with you? Um, And getting a little bit beyond that sort of surface level um, professionalism, you know, take an interest in them. That's what creates more business. That's what creates referrals. That's what makes a client pick up the phone and, you know, out of the blue call you and say, oh, hey, I need some help. And that's the point where they don't really bat an eyelid when you tell them your fees. That's the kind of business that you want. Amazing. Thank you so much uh, for those like rapid fire little uh, bits. And I feel like this was such a value packed episode, even though it was very short. And because I'll explain this later to all the listeners, but we've had such a day today. So thank you so much, Nima, for being patient and like uh, just being so positive and, you know, talking about all of these things with our audience. Oh, I've loved spending time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And yeah, it was a pleasure having you on. And everyone, thank you for joining for today's podcast. Want to get a workbook detailing steps you can take for your business today, as well as our top recommendations for entrepreneurs? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, take a screenshot, and email it to contact at thinkida.com. Thank you for listening to the Lightbulb Moment Podcast. We'll see you here next time.